श्री गोरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्रीमाद भगवद गीता की जाए गुड वेलकम एवरी वन नाइस टू बी हियर विथ यू ऑल अगेन एंड कैन यू हेयर मी ओके and today we will speak briefly hopefully so I have to catch flights after the program and uh see if we can leave a little time for for questions yesterday we spoke a little from this uh 12th chapter of the gita Today I'm going to speak a little from the ninth chapter, excuse me, tenth chapter, verse 9. Mudchita madgata prana budayanta parasparam katayantas chamam nityam tushanti cha ramanti cha. Krishna speaking. And um, the context here is that... Uh, he has been speaking in brief about his opulence uh his uh power if you will hmm. his godliness and uh and having done so he Well, he, he, I guess he wants to say he, he, he did so just after <laughs> having uh, been very immersed in, in speaking about devotion itself and, and his devotees, the very emotional section of the Gita in the ninth chapter. Krishna becomes very emotional talking about those who love him. And uh, then as this chapter begins, he waxes into his... his uh, godliness if you will and, and speaking about that and um and then he says um that uh well i guess he he he, he turns back into speaking about devotion and uh he has more or less emphasized the point that that um as i said the other day if you want to love unconditionally purely then there are a couple of things that you need to have in place one thing is the motive has to be pure in other words without any conditions right to use the term unconditionally we in the bhakti text uh, often the term is used unalloyed same idea um, kind of um it's uh, perhaps a little more refined um because you could try to love one unconditionally hmm, and still love others and other things hmm. but um the un- idea of unconditional love as presented in the gita is as i say often spoke of as unalloyed which means that there's no other object in there there's no <laughs> there's no other concern hmm, um for anyone else or anything else but the wonderful thing about that is that when that love comes in the heart unalloyed love focused only 
on Krishna, no one else, nothing else, hmm? then it ends up um, translating, if you will, or transforming into love for everything and, and everyone. That's very interesting. Um, so, in other words, there is the there is a position of some for someone to say, "Give me all your love, and don't give it anywhere else." And and that person who's in the real position to say that uh, is the person whom, by accepting the love that we give, is in the, in a position and capable of transforming it in such a way that it goes everywhere. I've given an example before, like the stomach. If you want to put food in your body, you would do well to put it in the stomach. <laughs> because the stomach, unlike any other part of the body, has the capacity to take food and transform it such that it can go everywhere and nourish every part of the body. So as there's a center, in this sense, to our body that we should um, see that the food gets to, so there's a center of everything. And that person, that center, has the right to say, give me everything. <laughs> because that's the way in which everything that you give will go as far as it can go, as far as you might like it to go. So, so, so two things I mentioned are necessary for unconditional or unalloyed love. First, it must be unalloyed, so it must be exclusive. And, and then, no other motive. I'm not loving for something else. For things, I love you, and you give me some things back. And kind of, this is more like a business arrangement. Not like that. And not even for, for mukti. I will love, for mukti means liberation, yeah, enlightenment. I love you. You give me enlightenment, and um, not like that, but loving for its bhakti, seva, love for its own sake, unalloyed. And then the other part, and we're already talking about it, but um, to single it out, uh, I have already, but the love must be unalloyed, no motive, and then it must be properly centered. So I could have unalloyed love, but it might not be properly centered, and that would be a, f- a recipe for frustration. My object of love could transform before me and even disappear for that matter. Hmm? Um, another person, another thing, all things are here today and gone tomorrow. And and interestingly enough, the, our sense of self is kind of like a thing too. Side point, but worth bringing up. <laughs> <laughs> because what is it? Uh, materially speaking, our sense of self is really, as I've often said, a, a product of our attachment to things. Hmm? That's what defines us materially. I like this thing, I don't like that thing. And I'm defining myself thereby. Hmm? I like this country, I don't like that country, I like this language, not that language, I like this type of car, not that one. Hmm? I have my happies, my sads, my goods, my bads, and all this uh, is relative to to things that we're being drawn to by the force of our mind and, and senses. And um, what to speak of the things, even the mind and the senses don't have a thing to do with ourselves. 
as an atma, as the as the as the the perceiver, the experiencer, the unit of consciousness. And so our sense of self and often our sense of others um, is such that others are just things and we also are just a thing. Hmm? At least that material sense of self. Hmm? Now obviously there's a, there's more than a thing to it. There's consciousness that's that's thinking like that but it's thinking materially if you will. Hmm? And um, welcome. It's it's given itself over to matter by way of identification and it becomes I guess you could say covered and we almost become like matter hmm? and our lives don't matter hmm? uh, <laughs> well we're busy for uh, as said as an English poet what did he say what was his name Gray, Gray's Elegy, do you know? He said, all the wealth, the power. Hmm? Uh, that uh, one can get, uh, uh, one can, all the we- <laughs> wealth, pomp, power, it's an old one. Um, comes your way, leads but to the grave, something like that. Hmm? That's where it ends up. Hmm? Something starts over again, of course, that's us, but unbeknownst to ourselves, unfortunately. So even our self, materially speaking, is a, is a thing, because it's based on things, attachment to things, identifying with things, with matter. <clears throat> so if we give ourselves to another person entirely, hmm, we're in effect giving ourselves to another thing. In other words, that person as we know them, our loved one is also here today and gone tomorrow. That person really is not, the Atma is not, but what we think that Atma is or that Atma thinks it is, um, that is a passing affair. Now there's a way, of course, that sounds a little harsh, I know, because we all love one another and we like one another, but there, there is a way of loving one another and deeply and meaningfully hmm? Um, in every sense, in the material sense, and, 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 and not such that it's at the cost of, uh, of, of, um, of what um, mere uh, attachment, if you will, costs us. So there's a way to love one another in the context of sp- our spiritual culture. That uh, we can make associations, loving ones, that help us foster our spiritual culture. Hmm? We may need a significant other to have emotional standing and wholeness and so forth to then proceed along the path of spiritual life. That can be very beautiful. Hmm? Um, but it requires that the partners both kind of have this figured out that. There's something that's more important to me than you and than you to me, ultimately. And that makes everything work pretty well, actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, just a, a caveat there, because that sounds a little harsh. And not recommending by any means. And the text we're talking about here, we're coming to, is not talking about, not recommending being alone. 
Being with others, having a sangha, bodhayanta, parasparam, as Krishna says here. So we'll get to that. But some knowing, anyway, as to uh, what is the, uh, the, the nature of the material predicament, how deluding it is and so forth, is important to help us understand how to love because we, we want to love, we want to love unconditionally, but if we give our love without any conditions and exclusively to something, that is a recipe for uh, not realizing the fulfillment in love that, um, that we pursue because the thing will be here today and gone tomorrow. We ourselves, as I said, materially speaking, are more or less a thing, a bubble in the ocean of, of time that will, will pop, disappear. Hmm? There's a nice poem in the Bhagavad like this. It's full of poetry, book of poetry, Kavya. It is some 18,000 verses. One goes like this. Ayur harati vaipungsang ujjanastan chayanaso tasyartayachano nitta uttamasloko vartaya Ayur Harati by Pumsam. All, all beings, Pumsam. Ayur Harati. Ayur means like Ayurved, right? Ayur means life. Ayurved is life science. Ayur Harati is a fact of life. That means, Harati means Hari. Harati. And the same, it's, a, it's the name of God, Hari. And harati means the same thing, same from the same verbal root. It means to take away. God's name is who takes away. <laughs> like time, something like that. Hmm? Doesn't wait for anyone. Has its own time. Time is on its own clock. Something like that. So hari, who takes away. In Krishna Leela, this is the favorite name of Krishna in the pastoral leelas of Krishna with his cows and milkmaidens and friends and so forth that we hear about that can be experienced in meditation that can be entered into that movement within transcendence that is all play, all ananda. Hmm? There they like to call him Hari. When we say Hari, we think, oh, he who takes away, it's a little foreboding. <laughs> Uh-oh. Something like that, but they don't think like that. They say, Hari, this is his name. Why? Because it means to steal, actually, to steal away. That really rings true then when we think of Krishna. He's a thief, that's a fact. Hmm? Why? Because they think, oh, he's the one who's stolen our heart. Hmm? This is bhakti, you see. <laughs> he will take away everything, but in a very beautiful way. <laughs> Because if he takes our heart, then we can't give it anywhere else. Hmm? Rupa Goswami, great poet and, and uh, saint in our tradition, he wrote another poem. I'll, I'll give it to you briefly in English. He said, Don't go to the banks of the Jamuna River that runs in, the, in, the, in Vrindavan, the pastoral place of Krishna's Leela. Don't go there. Hmm? Don't go to the banks of the Jamuna because surely you'll see him there. 
standing, bending in a threefold way as he does, very beautiful with his uh, romantic sham, is the color of his complexion, it's the romantic color of Indian aesthetics, in his charm, playing his flute. Don't go there, don't look at him, because if you do, you'll be finished. You'll never be able to go back and participate in ordinary life with any kind of enthusiasm again. So, <laughs> so he, he's speaking of it in a beautiful way. Don't go there. This will be a problem for you. Hmm? Who steals away the heart? He takes. He knows what's valuable. The wise thief. Hmm? I've told the story before, but my Guru Maharaj once said that there were two uh, constables in the Indian government, and one of them said, you know, it's a real problem that our God, Krishna, is a, is a thief. And Krishna Leela, he's always stealing butter and milk and things. He's quite mischievous. For God to steal, we call that play. That's the meaning of Leela. Who owns everything when they steal, that is play. Hmm? It's a very uh, charming idea. Of, of God, but at any rate, he said, it's a problem, our God is a thief, and here we are, you know, policemen, so <laughs> we're trying to teach people not to steal. Hmm? And the other fellow said, no, that's a good thing, that he's a thief. And why? He said, well, because a thief does not care for high walls and locked doors, and that's exactly what we've erected around our heart. We're not letting just anybody in there, but the thief doesn't care. <laughs> he goes in anyway. And in the form of his name, Hari Krishna, he goes everywhere, even we like it or not. And we end up in a place like this. <laughs> and we wonder, Am I, should I be here? Should I listen to this? What should I let into my heart or not? Hmm? And so forth. He's a bit of, bit of an aggressive lover, <laughs> Krishna. <laughs> And that's that's good for us. I've said I said maybe the other night that uh, we think of love as being voluntary. You can't be forced to love, but <laughs> but bhakti comes to us um, by a force beyond ourselves. Hmm? It, bhakti is really Krishna sharing his love for us through the medium of his devotees who move in the world under the influence of the shakti of his love, bhakti, hmm? and they touch people in ways that they, they know about it or don't know about it, and they become affected. And then, as I say, one day they find themselves in a place like this and and um, start thinking about it. What does it mean? It, grow, it, it has, kind of grows on you. You've got to get used to this. Hmm? Actually, we are, we're not talking about something that is, uh, that is an option. That's very interesting. Hmm? This is our, uh, we're talking about our, our destiny, hmm? our real self-interest. And it's been, it's been brought to our attention hmm? by Krishna through the agency of his, his uh, Savites, his devotees, hmm. driven by that, driven by his affection themselves. Hmm? So, <clears throat> so, Krishna has been speaking a little bit about his power, his godliness, his uh, his being that stomach that you know, can consume everything. Hmm? 
And um, that is, I said, one part of the equation. If you want to love perfectly, you have to love without any ulterior motive. And you have to be able to find a center, a taker. If love is giving, you have to find a taker that can take it, that can accept it. Hmm? Fully. So, having spoken about himself as the center, now he starts to speak about that other half of the equation, unalloyed love, and he does so by speaking about his how it is characterized in his devotees, how they embody that. Hmm? So he says, Madchita, Madgata, Prana, Bodhayantas, Parasparam. Hmm? He says, first of all, they're he says, Bodhayantas Parasparam. Parasparam means, oh, he said, my devotees are not alone. They're not off living in a cave. Hmm? But they are in Sangha, hmm? in association with one another. So this is very nice because, as I mentioned, we've talked about the fact that if we give ourselves to, let's say, a significant other or a child or something in a, in, our, in, in, in our our life, our own child, and we want to give unlimitedly and unconditionally and so forth, these are noble ideas, and we should as much as possible, but we should know philosophically that, well, there's going to be a limitation to that. If this is where I invest all of my love, this my child is not the center. It might be the center of the world of my mind. Hmm? But the whole world is, the whole world is off-center. And then, so with your partner, and that starts to sound kind of harsh, like, oh gosh, I'm going to be all by myself here. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to divorce myself from my friends, from my family, from my, from my own sense of self, my emotional reality, my, my personality that I've been working on for all these years, <laughs> <laughs> and so forth. So, uh, so it's very much softened here in bhakti. Hmm? In, in a sense that bhakti is largely a collective. And indeed, my guru used to say, oh, uh, Krishna is never alone. He would not like us to paint a picture of Krishna alone. Hmm? Because Krishna is never alone in a sense. I mean, you could take a picture and have part of him and so forth. But, uh, but he, he, Krishna is, is, is the absolute, if you will, but defined... Hmm? honed, <laughs> focused on most uh, com- comprehensively through the lens of love. That lens of love is bhakti. That means the devotee hmm, is as much necessary as Krishna. There's no Krishna without the devotee. There's no devotee without Krishna. There's no, there's no teacher without student, no students without, without teacher. Uh, so the devotee and the love, love of God, bhakti, and Krishna are one. They're one and, and different uh, at the same time. So, what, I mean, a dynamic unity. Hmm? But Krishna, standing next to Radha, who is the personification of the fullest love, this is the fullest idea, then, of divinity. Hmm? So you see the pictures of Krishna with the cows and the friends and all these are all uh, depictions of types of love, like friendly love, Hmm? like romantic love, like parental love, hmm? that 
that has grown out of or arisen out of hmm, focusing one's loving capacity on the on the, the uh, on the appropriate uh, um, center. Hmm. As you do that, in a general sense, with a serving disposition, in time, it 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 develops into a particular flavor of love. Usually, the kind of the same flavor of love that your guide or teacher or guru has for Krishna will start to grow, and, and you will start to think of Krishna as a friend, as a, as a romantic, in a romantic sense, and, and so forth. So these things are all depicted in art. That's why I said the other day, these mystics in the Bhakti tradition, they were not very much concerned with the forces of matter that modern science, for example, is so concerned about, and, and then manipulating them in, in different ways through technology to create things for us to make our lives better and so forth. They were entirely really concerned with consciousness, with the subjective aspect of life, not the objective aspect of life. And therefore, when they, when they, if they were to talk about the forces of the world, this is how they talked about it. Parental love, hmm? romantic love, friendly love, vatsalyam, sakyam, madurjam. Hmm? And they... And they have spoken in, in, in great detail about having differentiated oneself from matter, from things, hmm? and coming to, to, to understanding I am consciousness, what possibilities lie in that world of consciousness. And they've determined that the possibilities that we are trying to pursue as a unit of consciousness now, identified with matter, hmm? those possibilities exist in the realm of consciousness. In other words, we are trying to pursue romantic love. We are trying to pursue friendly love. We are trying to pursue parental love and so forth. Hmm? But there are problems with it. <laughs> hmm? Should we then decide, well, these things are all a folly. I should just sit still. They said, oh no, just, when we bring Krishna into the picture with the full idea of Krishna, then we see these possibilities, which are really... Um, the 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 driving influences of the world. I mean, they are. Even when they're off center, what I mean to say, like I said, you could have some fellow who was, um, you know, involved in a very important technological development, and he got a call, and his son was in an accident, and he put the whole thing down, and the parental love would be driving him and so forth. So we're at, we, at consciousness is driven by feeling. It's the world of feeling. It cannot be objectified. Hmm? Don't seek objective proof for all of this. <laughs> That's like thinking I need objective proof that I exist before I, you know, I'm willing to get up out of bed and do anything in the morning. <laughs> no. We have a subjective experience that we exist and we function accordingly. Objective truth has its place. Science has its place, but everybody does science. You know, every kid does science. Touch the fire, it burns. You realize, well, I did an experiment. I touched it, burned. I did it again. Don't do it a third time. Hmm? Fire burns. That's science. That's not. It's not a big, such a big thing. I mean, if you hone that, then, hmm? and in the context of honing that, you expect to know everything, hmm? and that everything is in the objective side of life, in how matter 
interacts, works, and so forth in great detail. Hmm? And thus, the results of your findings are handed over to techn technicians who then create other things and so forth. <laughs> we just end up in the, absorbed in the objective side of life at the cost of, at the loss of the subjective. What is consciousness? What am I? Hmm? And, we, and there are circles then where they philosophize away the self, hmm? the I, although they cannot live like that. Yoga is meant for going deeply on the other side. Yeah, you know something about matter. Yes, uh, we talk about it a little bit. As much as, as much as we have to know hmm, in order to pursue our real self-interest. So bhakti hmm, is, is really exploring the, all the possibilities of consciousness and in a very basic sense then these uh, bhakti saints have concluded consciousness is about ananda. Means hmm? about a capacity to love. When properly centered, all the possibilities of love that we dreamed about and pursued hmm? in a misdirected way, to one extent or another, can be fulfilled, can, have, uh, uh, can be experienced. And there is a world then, hmm? a world of, of uh, a consciousness world, and there are forms there made out of consciousness. That's a pretty far out idea. But think about it. Hmm? What are the material forms? Here's a form of material ingredients. What makes it so? What gives it its shape? Hmm? Consciousness gives it its shape, isn't it? All these forms of this world are all a product of consciousness interacting with the basic formless kind of ingredients to use an ancient terminology that the Gita uses there's there's liquidity there's fire hmm? there's solidity you know earth there's water fire there's 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 wind or there, there's air there's movement i should say air Earth, water, fire, air. Hmm? They talked about the basic ingredients like this, not in a really refined, you know, scientific way, but enough to get the idea. And then, in conjunction with movement, with uh, with uh, with fire, the big things today are fire, you know, electricity, computers. Hmm? Um, but in conjunction with solidity, liquidity, fire, and so forth, then matter takes shapes. Hmm? Uh, or or in, in conjunction with consciousness, these, these ingredients come together. Hmm? So the shapes, the forms of this world are a product of consciousness interacting with matter. Now, if consciousness would interact with itself, the reasoning is, it it it. it it has a shape also. It gives shape to things. Hmm? So to give shape to yourself. So we talked about the form of Krishna yesterday. This is kind of the idea. It's really abstract in a sense because we, 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 we're accustomed to thinking of forms and we think these forms form and then they disappear in due course. So the spiritual must be formless, kind of empty, Mm. Uh, but 
This is a different idea in bhakti. Leela is a different, a different idea. There's movement there. It's not like the movement here. Hmm? Sometimes Krishna is described as being formless, which means his form is nothing like our forms. Nothing like it whatsoever. Hmm? Although you can look at the picture and that's, that depicts that, what a mystic has experienced, and think looks kind of similar, but they want to say it's entirely different. Hmm? This is a form of Sat, the form of Chit, and a form of Ananda. If, if eternity, existence, knowledge, and bliss could take a shape, hmm? we could take advantage of it. We could interact with it. Hmm? So this is the idea of Leela, and therefore these saints, these mystics, they emphasize these forces as the possibilities of consciousness, the basic possibility to love, which is really what we're living for materially. So the science, if you will, of it all, is to how to repose that loving propensity. Where? Hmm? And Krishna's saying, over here, here. Hmm? And the result will be, wonderfully, that prem, prem will come. And prem is very locally kind of intense for you. Hmm? But just imagine, if you could be so happy that your hairs were standing on end at every moment, then, uh, I, you know, America's kind of, in a way, sometimes I think about it, you know, you go along the bike trail or down the street and people go, morning, you know, how are you, have a good day. It doesn't happen like that in, 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 in all countries, especially where, they, where the material needs are greater and they're not being met. You know, we live in a fairly affluent uh, situation with our, you know, you know, terrible economy. <laughs> it's I mean, we live pretty affluently, and but it it affords us some kind of like okay, have you know, you can think, you know, hope you're okay too, you know, uh, have a nice day. Because California, I think, it started. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> sunshine and all. So, um, so when you have fully, really, and having material facilities and so forth, is really comparatively as to what's to be had or as to what, compared to what you are, how full you are, we are, as a unit of consciousness. It's, it's empty, in other words. I mean, we, could, we could have all the material facilities and so forth, and it would be nothing. You, we, we look for to add things on to ourselves to make our lives more full, but the secret, of course, is if we empty things, uh, empty our sack, so to speak, if we let go of things, we'll find the fullness of the self, that it, the self is already full, hmm? more full than, than it could possibly be, possibly be materially by adding things on. And so, point being, how happy you will be, how that will automatically overflow into, onto others. Hmm? is the idea. Hmm? So, I was making the point that in bhakti, we, we, we see our object uh, as Krishna, but he's not alone. Hmm? Because what we're looking at is the object of love, and there's no meaning of looking at the object of love unless there's some love to define it as the object of love. So, Krishna and his devotees, and for his devotees in this plane, for example, in sadhaka days, in the, in the bodies of practitioners. Hmm? We have a body, 
as a practitioner of bhakti that's not like an ordinary ordinary body. Why is that? Hmm? Well, an ordinary body is a body in which one's that consists of senses, hmm? and the senses are attached to things, right? And a sense of self is being derived from that, as I've explained. But the sadhaka deha, the more the sadhaka deha means body, and sadhaka means spiritual practitioner. The more the sadhaka deha, one lives as a sadhaka in his body or her body, the more the senses are not in touch with material things, at least in the context of bhakti, not for the purpose of utilizing them for fostering this mental sense of self that's so so small and so much of a taker. Hmm? So because you change, you really change the object that your senses are focused on. By way of placing Krishna, for example, in your heart, then when you look at the flower hmm, in the garden that's blooming and you think, well, that would be nice to give to my lover. Hmm? You see? Let me give that for my friend. So here you're doing the same thing. You're in touch. This flower looks beautiful, but your heart is... You have someone in your heart <laughs> other than this worldly sense of self, which might include others that I attach myself to. That's partly defined... serves to define my mental sense of self and so forth. You come out from that very beautifully. In the context of doing the same things, you might do otherwise. It's all a matter of heart. So... She picks the flower and brings it back and has the picture of Krishna on the altar, places it before him. So with what you see, with what you hear, and, and what happens is you, your spiritual practice starts to permeate your whole life. This is what we want, right? To permeate our whole life. And then as Krishna's not alone... The text we're reading here, Bodhayantas Parasparam, Krishna says, he's talking about his devotees. He says, they, are mutu- they always are mutually enlightening one another. In other words, the more you place this Krishna in your heart, the more you want to associate with people who have the same interests. And therefore, when you're together and you associate, the nature of your sangha, your association, transforms into one that, that, ter- that turns it into an ongoing uh, sadhana, spiritual practice in a living and a dynamic sense. The practice is not just to sit. Hmm? Indeed, how you walk will also determine how well you can sit. Hmm? How you conduct yourself in everyday life will have much to do with how peaceful your mind is when you sit. And you can really sit in a meaningful way. Hmm? So we want to integrate these. And bhakti is so friendly in this regard. So therefore Krishna says, bodhayantas parasparam. They are always mutually enlightening one another. They're walking together. Hmm? One sees something think that causes a philosophical thought. Hmm? Share it with the other one. That one says, yes, in the Gita it says this. And there they are off making a, you know, then they tell me and then I have that point to use when I speak to you. And <laughs> this way we share thoughts and uh, we use our senses and so forth in a way that starts to transform even this so-called material body. Because what makes something material or spiritual, in one sense, is the utilization of a thing. Hmm? Let's say a temple, for example. 
it's just made out of the same bricks and wood and what makes it spiritual over the house you know across the street it's how you use it right the consciousness uh, behind it so so while I was saying and it sounds a little harsh as I mentioned that you shouldn't give your love to another thing or another person entirely exclusively and expect to find and experience the idea behind unalloyed love because all these persons are conglomerations of attachments and so on and so forth. It starts to sound harsh, but in the context of bhakti, we're also told not to be alone. Better to have sangha. Keep good association. Krishna is never alone. So we should form a sangha. <laughs> and it's not difficult. People are forming associations for all kinds of things, right? To better their capacity to pursue them. So I come here to Portland, you know, regularly. You should form us. Well, I guess you do have the bhakti <laughs> shop, right? But that, should, that idea should expand. This is my, my idea. Hmm? We should have some cows, and <laughs> <laughs> so you need to get a, a little a rural rural extension of the bhakti shop, where you can have extended retreats and so forth, and we can all gather for a week and hear and chant and talk about these things. Mm. That would be nice, right? Mm. So that's yoga to do that. Mm. So here Krishna says, yeah, they're always the nature of my devotees. They're always together with one another. They're always talking about me, enlightening one another, hmm? sharing their thoughts, reflections. Hmm? This is nice. So we, we don't have to leave one another. We can love one another to death. <laughs> love one another <laughs> forever, something like that. Then we start, when we start to relate to one another for what we really are in terms of our potential and so forth, then we also realize, well, we better get used to one another because no one's going anywhere. <laughs> We're all here forever. Whatever exists will always exist. Whatever doesn't exist will never exist. Hmm? Hmm. So we exist. We'll always exist. We should get used to one another. So that's also there. We won't get along with every devotee, but that's because we are there, that, not that much devotees yet, so <laughs> we carry some baggage, but some tolerance is also required. Hmm? So, he says, my devotees, he's very emotional here, he's speaking about them. He says, bodhayantas parasparam. They're always together mutually. Bod, bod means like Buddha, enlightenment there. They're always talking about me, and the thoughts about me are always profound and interesting and deep, and they get lost in that, the implications of that, and so forth. Hmm? Nice mental kind of preoccupation. With regard to the mind, it says, Madchita, Madgata, Prana. Madchita, Madgata, Prana. So, Chitta. Chitta is a yogic term. Um, it, what it means is that internal aspect of, of mind, if you will, in yoga psychology, um, that, that myself, the atma, communicates with matter through 
as a subtle form of, ma- of, of matter that in a basic sense is called mind and has different components in the yogic world. And that mind, um, you know, mind can take the shape of the thing it's focused on, so to speak. And when the, what happens is, in yoga terminology, when the mind takes the shape of a certain thing, then a picture of that thing comes. And we identify with the picture. So that internal aspect of the mind called chitta is like a camera, it's like a mirror. So if you took the mirror and you went there, and you reflected on a particular object or, or person, then um, you have perception of that, you have identification with that, and so through this anyway medium of the chitta, we're communicating with and influencing um, matter. We don't really ever touch matter, but through the instrument of the subtle matter, the chitta, then there's some there's a, there's a material experience. Hmm? And so this chitta is like full of vrittis, if you will, like like waves hmm? on an ocean. Thoughts, pictures, images, uh, ideas, and so forth, <coughs> tendencies that go with it. So all these chitta vrittis, they're just going kind of up and down, and you know we're tossing and turning on that ocean. So uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the great um, inaugurator of this kind of uh, chanting that we're doing, uh, Hare Krishna chanting and kirtan with these particular instruments and so forth. He said a nice thing chet, about the chanting. He said, Cheto darpanam martam. Cheto means chitta, same thing. Darpanam means mira. Marjanam means to cleanse. He said, this chanting, the beginning, what it does is it cleanses the mirror of the chitta. So you've got these other images all on there. It cleanses them. Hmm? And it does it in the context of turning the mirror on Krishna. Hmm? And so, what instead of the focus being chitta vritti nirodha, to empty and do away with the chitta vrittis, it's about hmm, Krishnan mukhi. Krishnan mukhi. Krishnan mukhi chitta vritti sevaya. Hmm? This is shraddha actually. Shraddha means faith. But faith doesn't mean belief here. Faith means some experience. By associating with a person, Krishna says in the Gita, is his or her faith. Shraddhoayam purushaha. So, while belief is a mental affair, faith is actually what, uh, what, what moves us, and, it, and faith comes from experience. So when we have experience through sadhasanga, we get shraddha, we get faith. What happens, in other words, is we start to get a uh, Krishna vritti, bhakti vritti. Hmm? Hmm. This then, how does it translate out when it when it has matured? This uh, not matured, but it reaches a certain pitch. It, it translates it, when it's and it's called shraddha at that point. It's called faith, which enables one to tread the path. It works like this: it affects you in such a way that you think and you feel. I have no interest in anything else. This is what I really want to do. Hmm? This is what I. This Krishna bhakti. This is what I want to do. Or you think, 
I have interest in other things, but that's too bad. That's unfortunate because this is what I really want to do. <laughs> hmm? So, <laughs> and, and you think there would be nothing that I could do that would be better for me or in my better in my interest than this. Hmm? What then? Obviously, one that one's ready to tread the path. This is called, this is called shraddha, hmm? and it's it's Krishna Mukhi Chit Vritti hmm? Seva. Hmm? It is this sensibility. On the one hand, there's nothing else that when I sit down, I think, this is what I really want to do. Hmm? There are other things I'm busy with and whatnot, but if I really was to be asked or ask myself, this is what I really want, and I have confidence that by doing that. Under good guidance, my life will become perfect. Hmm? Such a person is like ready to be plucked from the tree, <laughs> the fruit, something like that. Uh, the way this, of course, comes about is through sadhusanga, as I've said. Unknowingly, you get in touch with this. There's, and it, it, it's, it's like a plant. If you take a seed and you put it in the ground, when it pops up, you go, there it is, there's the cauliflower, it's coming. <laughs> but it was also going, roots were going down, right? It was germinating and roots were going down and you couldn't see that underground. So there's some underground work that's going on before we reach this point where I'm above the ground, so to speak, and I, I, want, to tr- I want to tread the path. And this is what I really think is, I'm sure of it, is, is it the best thing. Hmm? This is called Shraddha and this is called Krishnon Mukhi Chitavritti or Bhakti Vritti. And that Bhakti Vritti, that will very quickly do away with other Vrittis. So Chitavritti Nirodha, that will be, that will be accomplished. I, I, I'll give an example before, it's something like this. All those crisscrossing waves of Vrittis in the mind that to make it as disturbed as it is, they'll all go away. But instead of it just being placid and still, like if you come across a beautiful pond, the forest, and it's just still, it gives you a nice feeling. That, that's one thing. But this is another thing. It's like you throw a stone in the still pool, and all the waves go out like this. So there's movement, but it's concentric, and it's, it's beautiful. It's also soothing. It's, it's, even, um, it's more soothing in a sense. I mean, we, we come to that place, we become peaceful, but we also want movement. Hmm? We want a movement that won't be troublesome. Hmm? Movement that's troublesome, you know what that is? That's movement that has involved taking. The reason it's troublesome is because there's something to pay for that. That is karma. Hmm? Movement in the realm of karma is troublesome because we've taken and we owe. Hmm? Movement in the realm of bhakti is only giving. Hmm? There's nothing owed. You have gotten, and you've gotten everything because you're giving. As you know, we say it in common English parlance that the giving is the getting, right? Hmm? So how to realize? This is a simple, this is a whole thing. Krishna Bhakti is in a nutshell. Giving is getting. Hmm? Giving is, 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 the, is, is, the, is, the, is, is the full idea of getting. So you take that as a universally accepted principle. Now you play that out philosophically, the ramifications of that. You come to Krishna. You have to come 
to where you can give completely, where that stomach that can take completely. A fellow told one of my students, he said, you know, uh, in Christianity we have a much better idea of God than you do. He said, why? He said, well, because Christ is the epitome of sacrificing. And Krishna is the epitome of just womanizing and enjoying. We've seen how he's depicted and so forth. And so they asked me about that and I said, I said, yes, that's, that's true, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to, to an extent, but, but who is, who is, how should the center act? And how should the circumference act? The circumference, if you will, is dependent upon the center. No center, no circumference. So the circumference should give to the center, but the center should be the taker. So the Christ is doing the sacrificing, but for who? Hmm? Uh, he said, what, for the Father or something like that, in, his, in simple terms. He's doing it for God, for, for, for God's will, for God's purpose. So if, if there's a giver, a sacrificer, there has to be a taker on the other end. So to depict the taker as a taker, that's to make the philosophical point. You understand? Hmm? Krishna is just the enjoyer. He has no work to do. All the gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon, they all got something to do. They either got, a, they got four heads like Brahma, they're real busy creating, you know, and, uh, or they're like Shiva, they've got, they've got something to attain, meditation. Hmm? And Krishna's just playing all the time. Hmm? So as I said before, who plays all the You have to have power to play. Take a vacation, you have to have money in the bank. Hmm? So who's only playing has all power. You expect him to look like a real powerful, you know. Or, of course, in Krishna Bhakti it's so nice because nothing wrong with Christianity, but if you want to talk about sacrificing, the sacrificing component of the Absolute, then we have that in Radha. So beautiful. Such a beautiful form of love and sacrifice. Hmm? We say God is Radha and Krishna. Hmm? So, from Shraddha, from faith, from this, 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 this Bhakti Vritti coming, causing, it, it gives me some, I have some sense, some experience that this is good for me. It's, it's, who has faith then becomes a carrier of that. It's, it's contagious. Hmm? So you catch that. Hmm? And you pursue that. He's talking here at, in this verse about the end of that. He says, Machita. So what happens is that the, the, their, their, their chitta is completely uh, consumed by me. There's nothing on their mind but me. Hmm? This happens later. It takes a little time. First, you have to practice. Hmm. The idea in Krishna's milkmaidens, they, they have some nice prayers in the Bhagavad where they, they are trying to, they, they were with Krishna and then Krishna left, you know, to go do some princely activities and so forth. And there they were left. So they wanted, it was troublesome for them because they, they, had, they needed to get him off their mind. Hmm. 
and he, because he wasn't there, and they loved him. So they were trying to get him off of their mind. You see, generally in yoga, we try to get Krishna on our mind. Hmm? That's difficult, hmm? because we have other things in our heart and mind. They were trying to, actively trying to get Krishna off their mind, and they, they couldn't do it. What kind of yoga is that, then, you see? How deeply absorbed they are. <laughs> so they are, de- they are depicted in this. That means the power of bhakti is such to unite us as yoga, yoke, uh, uh, is to do with the absolute. In bhakti, we, we find an extreme. Hmm? They, 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 they regularly tried <laughs> to get him off their minds, and they could not. Hmm? So how this happens is that in time, then, at a certain point, the, the practices which we do out of intelligence and some enthusiasm and the even, even some bliss as a result of good association, it's reflected upon us. We call it um, abhas. Abhas is like a shadow, so bhava bhas. You associate with someone, you're under the direction of someone who has bhava, who has ecstasy, who's experiences bhakti in ecstasy. There's bhakti in practice, there's bhakti in ecstasy, hmm? and there's bhakti in love. So the ecstasy is the churn, the love is the churning of that ecstasy. So it takes a form and uh, uh, solidifies and so forth. But, but bhakti in practice comes before this. So this bhakti in practice is kind of like imitation of a good thing is a good thing, something like that. Hmm? So we are associated with, we are under the guidance of someone who, has, who is experiencing ecstasy and bhakti, and there's an abbas that may come from that, a shadow of that, a reflection, hmm? onto us. And we may have a deep uh, and blissful uh, experience. It's kind of like a place gets burned in your head, you know, and you have flashbacks over time. Hmm? And, and, and then you think of that time and you get a semblance further of that, that bhava. Hmm? And eventually, this bhava then comes into us. And sadhana bhakti, or bhakti in practice, turns into bhava, a bhakti in bhava, bhakti in ecstasy. There, there's a, we are moving in this world under the influence of maya. Okay, That's a shakti, right? The deluding influence. Hmm? So... There is an illuminating influence. We call that, a, that's another shakti. Uh, we, we say there's an external shakti, there's an internal shakti. One is, a, is, is, is deluding, one is uh, illuminating. Hmm? Bhakti is constituted of that illuminating shakti. Hmm? We're a unit of Satchitananda. Bhakti is a unit of Sandini, Samvit, Hladini. It kind of means like Satchitananda on steroids. <laughs> something like that hmm? and and there's through the practices of bhakti gradually first thing as I said this heart is being cleansed this mirror of the chitta is being cleansed hmm? but it's being cleansed in the context of cultivating another picture and, and that that starts to come into the into the conscious into the heart at a certain point it turns formally we could say from bhakti in practice to bhakti in ecstasy. Now the theological person of Krishna, right? He's a theological person. We're talking about him theologically, philosophically, and so forth, and 
and um, so on, becomes a real person. This is a very fascinating idea. The philosophical, theological person becomes a real person. And I become a real person also. As much as I was a thing, so to speak, and I started to move away from that, my real personhood now starts to come out in relation to Krishna. I I start to become a participant in that leela. It's invisible to others. It takes place within and so forth. So Krishna is talking about that here. This is Sudha Sattva Visheshatma Prema Suryam Susanyabhak. What is it? Um, then the, the chitta becomes, it's, it's like this, this bhakti comes on the mind. Hmm? This, this chitta, chitta, it comes on there. It's like if you took an iron rod, take, let's say you take a rod, a, 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 an iron rod, and you stick it in the fire. Okay? So let's say I take an iron rod and I touch you. Say, what iron feels like. Now I take the iron rod, I stick it in a fire for a long time. Then I touch you. Well, I say, that's what iron feels like. No, that's what fire feels like, right? It's taken on the qualities. It's still an iron rod, but it's taken on the qualities of the fire. So that's the point where this mind and chitta becomes taken over by bhakti, by, by the shakti that is bhakti. This is this, this internal illuminating shakti. Hmm? And it's under the, this, this influence, this is what Leela is governed by, driven by, this divine play. It's, and w- so one can, starts to become a player in it, starts to experience that, hmm? that world of consciousness and its possibilities. It understands itself fully, I'm a unit of consciousness, and then all the possibilities of consciousness uh, come, come before one. Hmm? This is what he's talking about here. Madchita, their minds are completely taken over hmm, by me. They can't think of anything else. They're moving only for, for my purpose and so forth. They're, 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 uh, and they're madchita, he said, madgata prana. It's totally permeated. Madgata hmm? prana, the whole life, prana means prana. You know, prana, the life air, their life is complete. This is, this is why Rupa Goswami said, don't go there. <laughs> don't look at Krishna, problem. Hmm? Take over your whole life, I guess. <laughs> so, madchita madgata prana, bodhayantas parasparam. He says, katayantas chamam nityam. About me, they're always talking. Hmm? They're always Chanting, talk is what they do. Katayantas chamam nityam. I'm going to race to the end here. Katayantas chamam nityam. Tushyanti cha, ramanti cha. Tushyanti means nourishment, and ramanti means like, like romantic love, something like that. So there's two categories of relationships with Krishna in in lila. One corresponds with really with the implication of this word ramanti, and the other three with tushanti. Tushanti. 
this is a little high here. Some of you may follow me, some of you may not. But in in Leela, then, Krishna has uh, uh, friends and well-wishers, elders, lovers, uh, who love him like parentally. And then there are romantic lovers. Hmm? Ramanti means like that. They, they experience Ramanti. And Tushanti means they experience Sambandhanug. Sambandhanug means like a relationship with me that uh, in, in Lila, like a friend, like, uh, like a parent, like a servant, something like that. These are relationships, of course, that are acceptable. Hmm? But the romantic love is unacceptable in the context of the Lila. All of Krishna's milk maidens, they're not married to him. That's a bad. <laughs> this, uh, this, is, this means it, it has a certain kind of intensity to it. Hmm? It's not supposed to be done, so it's all that more exciting. It's all play. Now you have to get it right. It's all play, but it's they're, they're, this is uh, Radha's love for Krishna. Hmm? In the context of the Leela, she's betrothed to someone else. Hmm? but she's stealing to see him. Hmm? That someone else is a partial manifestation of himself. <laughs> Leela is a very complex idea. But anyway, the point here is that, that by this kind of practice, by this coming to this pitch of absorption that we're talking about in the company of, of one another, these devotees go to this. They go to one of these primary type of relationships with Krishna as a friend, as a lover, as, as may be the case. So, any questions? Yes. What's the, what's the time? 2.25. Okay. I have a question about uh, the personality of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Mm. Um, I, it's fun to read about his life, what he said, because it, he, he seems pretty consistently funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In Chaitanya Charitamrita, for example, um, it's explained how Sanatana Goswami goes to meet him, and he breaks out of jail. He gives away a fortune. He's almost killed. He, you know, travels through the jungle for three days without, you know, food or sleep. He finally gets to Varanasi, and Mahaprabhu says, "I love your outfit. Great blanket." It's <laughs> 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 hilarious. <laughs> Kaviraj Goswami, of course, makes a point. You know, he does all his philosophical points. He brings out about the blanket, and, yeah. and Mahabharu was encouraging <laughs> renunciation and samat and all these things. But on the surface, he's just funny. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just wondering, is that me, or is, is that? Is there something <laughs> to that? Yeah, there's something to that. Sure. Chaitanya Mahabharu was very lighthearted, even in accomplishing very serious tasks, like the like, for example, the, his influence on Venkata, who was a great uh, devotee in Aishvarya, who worshipped God in reverence and so forth. Hmm? And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was advocating the cause of loving God and intimacy. So this fellow was completely steeped in reverential love and had a very important position in the lineage and so forth. So Chaitanya stayed with him for four months during the rainy season. And so he said... You know, I was wondering, you are a worshipper of Narayan, the four-armed uh, god, in reverence and awe and so forth, and his consort is Lakshmi. He said, yes. And um, 
Let me give you another example before I explain this to help you understand the point. I was once in South India, and there's a lot of reverential bhakti in South India. Hmm? Very, you know, um, and So we were with this one fellow at a Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit institution, and he was hosting us and serving us, and we were talking about Krishna, and we were laughing, and, and he was chuckling with us and so forth. So one of my friends said, you know, uh, sir, you know, whenever we talk about Krishna, you're so lighthearted. He said, yes, 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 Krishna, very nice. And then he said, but whenever we talk about Narayan, he said, that is another thing. <laughs> he went like that. I went, wow, this guy's far out. This is, <laughs> like, wow, you know, his bhava for Narayan was like, that's another thing. Krishna is an avatar of Narayan, and they, they see it like that. They see that Krishna is an aspect of Narayan, but, but all love is reverential. It's a certain bhava. We look at it differently, that Narayan is an aspect of Krishna. Hmm? And reverential love is subordinate, in a sense, to love and intimacy. It's less, uh, less intimate. <laughs> so, so Chaitanya was with one of these types of, of people. And so Narayan is always with Lakshmi. Lakshmi is always massaging his feet. She's depicted like this in the art. She has like a, like a reverential love for her husband, and she embodies that, and everybody in, the, in that realm follows that kind of, kind of love and so forth. So... There's a story in the Puranas that Lakshmi wanted to join in Krishna's dance with the gopis, this, this lawless uh, love play and so forth. So Chaitanya said to him, you know, I'm thinking you know, that Lakshmi is, is supposed to be very chaste to Narayan. She's completely dedicated to Narayan. He said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, what? I was wondering, why is it that she wanted that Go and dance with Krishna. So he's kind of joking like that. And the man said, well, of course, Krishna and Narayan, they're one and the same. It's not different. Krishna and Narayan, one is the avatar of the other. You know, so it's God in different forms, the same God in different forms. There's no, there's no breach of etiquette here or anything like that. And so Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, okay, very good. He said, but I had another question. He said, why is it that she was unsuccessful? <laughs> then he said, I don't know how you could even ask a question like that. And again, it was like, what kind of theology have you got here? And he hadn't, so Lakshmi, you see, she tried to, um, to enter into the, the love dance with Krishna and his friends and his girlfriends. And uh, in order to do that, she went to, to, the, to the, she's the, the queen, right, of, the, of Vaikuntha. I mean, she's depicted as being a very opulent place. Imagine what a queen's meals were and how you know the queen was treated and so forth. So she went to Vrindavan and she performed austerities and she ate roots and berries and things and she was fasting and all in order to get enter into this this uh, this leela. And so Krishna came and said, "Lakshmi, what are you doing here?" <laughs> she said, "I've come. I'm, I want to enter into your taste your your leela. You're an aspect of Narayan. I want to." want to, you know, experience everything about Narayan, something like that. He said, well, you can't do it like that. You can't just by fasting and all these type of things. He, he said, first you have to give up your husband. Hmm? Right? Hmm? Because this is, this is a lawless kind of love in the Leela. First you have to give up your husband. She said, she said that was it, you know. <laughs> I guess, 
<laughs> so he, well, he was really uh, 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 teaching, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was teaching, there's a way to enter into this, this leela. It's not by fasting, it's not by austerity, it's by following in the footsteps of those who have that kind of love and the path that they take and so forth. So anyway, it's, uh, some of you will be more acquainted with uh, these kind of stories to appreciate them than, than others, but uh, yeah, he was humorous at times. Why not? Someone who's this is Chaitanya, Chaitanya is Krishna in his leela as an as a as a teacher. So there's some more sober moments than in Krishna leela. Krishna's but he's Krishna, so that's going to come out. You know. What else? Another question. Yes. I'm curious. You mentioned <clears throat> early on that uh, ego, the small self, is mm. defined by preferences one thing over another. Um, is the preference for Krishna Bhakti over all else somehow transcendent of that? Or is it a spiritualization of the ego process? Yeah, because ego means identity, really. Your ego is your identity. So uh, we have a material ego. I would call it an enjoying ego, a taking ego. An identity that, if we look at it carefully, we see it's a taker. Why is it such? Because it's an identification with with something that's needy. In other words, let's say your body, well, it needs things, right? You need to eat to live. So you've identified with something that has uh, necessities. And so in order to meet those necessities, you're out taking. So that taking ego, or let's look at it another way, the ego that causes me to think of myself as the center. You could say, that guy's got a big ego, man. You know, he really thinks a lot of himself, right? Well, we all do to one extent or another, obviously, and we we think that that's the problem. If we were thoughtful and we want to erode that or efface that, um, it's kind of unbecoming, right? So... Um, therefore, in that sense, the, the ego, when we speak about the material ego, the identity, material life is one of, I'm the center, to one extent or another. Now, we find that unbecoming when we say, boy, that guy's got a big ego, right? So, holds true all the way across the board. Why? Because we're not the center. None of us are. Hmm? None of us are the center. So then, if we were to eradicate that, center means like the stomach is the center, is the enjoyer. You know, we kind of look at the world consciously or unconsciously as if it's moving around me. It's for me. How is it going to serve me? How is it going to serve me? And that me is kind of illusory. Because hmm? it's here today and gone tomorrow, as I said. So to eradicate that ego. Well, well, the simple question that arises is who's going to eradicate it? It has to be the ego, right? That's the only one that can... So, right. So, so the point is you have an identity. Hmm? If, we, if, we, if, if the ego is to be eradicated, there's a kind of an idea, well, then there's no self. But who, who's the self that's going to do away with the ego? How's the... So, in bhakti, we understand, no, 
There is a center. It's not me. That puts me on the circumference. There is an enjoyer. It's not me. I'm the enjoyed. Hmm? Just like, I'll give you an example. We look at matter as if it's to be enjoyed by us. Hmm? So, in relation to God, we're to be enjoyed. Just like matter looks like it's to be enjoyed by us. That's a real different headspace to be in, isn't it? I exist for the purpose of another. I'm thinking things exist for my purpose. Hmm? And there's, at least I see them through that lens. If they don't serve my purpose, I don't even see them. I don't care to see them. Hmm? So, I'm going to try to take it kind of full circle here instead of like just amputate the ego and then wait a minute. If the problem is that you think you're the center and you're not, does that mean there's no center? No, it doesn't. And if there is, where does that leave you? Hmm? you didn't be, you're not the center, so you must be on the circumference. If you're not the, 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 the taker, you must be a giver. Hmm? And so the giving ego, hmm, that, then to cultivate that, hmm, that is the best way to do away with the taking ego. And what will you be left with? An identity as a giver. You will be a lover. In bhakti, we become a lover. Hmm? And a lover means a giver. So now you imagine if everybody was just a lover and a giver, well, all the problems would be solved, right? Hmm? So, yes, so the, we, the, we, we transcend the taking ego by cultivating, I would say, the serving ego first and service kind of matures and condenses into love. If you love someone, you want to serve them. You want to do what they want. It's a, it reaches a certain pitch, it is, uh, like, like I say, as friendly, as romantic or whatever, but the basis of it is, is service. So, yeah, we are all an individual, individual atma. Hmm? And we can uh, uh, be deluded by way of identifying with matter and think we're the center and have a, I'd call it a false ego, and a real ego. Does that help? Yeah, that clarifies. Yeah. Um, is there a point in, I'm sorry, Dad, but Go is ahead. there a point in, in Bhakti where you give up even the taking ego? I mean, I'm sorry, even the, the giving ego. ego. No. Why would you want to do that? Okay. I know there are some, some forms of yoga that advocate that kind of idea, and I don't have a problem with it, but I, it's not something I'm interested in doing. Um, because why? If I was to stop giving, then, well, you answer it. I mean, what's left? So what? Uh, it's yeah, rather a. The taking. <laughs> you might go back to taking. <laughs> no, yeah. If you just just, just stop giving, in the, in the words, to to to, I would say that if you just stop giving, and that's all, you stop taking, and that's all you do. That, that you can be freed from the material condition. But your full prospect in spiritual life would not yet be realized. Because there is a taker. Hmm? There is a center. Let's say, if I say to, to you, you're, to, to, a, to a young child, you can't have that. That's not yours, you can't have that. So he goes, goes and stands in the corner and says, I won't do anything then. 
Hmm? You see, that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think you got it there. So, yes. Um, yesterday you talked a little bit about um, the differences between bhakti and gyan and the little bit of gyana and mishra, gyana mishra bhakti. And I've been sort of mm, thinking a lot about the, what is the difference between um, yoga gyan and bhakti and yoga mishra bhakti, gyan mishra bhakti, and looking at those three sort of ideas. And I, I know in, in the Gita it talks a lot about the differences, but I still sort of get um, yoga and gyan a little bit mixed up because they seem so similar. A little mm-hmm. bit. And karma yoga seems its own separate thing, and, I, and that seems very clear to me. But mm-hmm. the way that those three pass and the satcha and ananda really, and really in, in um, the yoga aspect, it, it, I didn't know as clear about it. Yeah, it's a big topic. I don't know how far we can go into it. I'll try to <laughs> kind of go through it brief, briefly with you. Look at it like this. In jnana, that means knowledge, the path of knowledge. The idea is that things are here today and gone tomorrow, so if I want to pursue enduring life, I cannot pursue it in relation to things that don't endure. Hmm? So that's the knowledge. Hmm? That stops me from interacting with things that don't endure. Therefore, the corollary of of knowledge in this context is detachment, renunciation. So the jnanis will practice and cultivate renunciation for its own sake, that being the the logical um, uh, result of knowledge. Knowledge being things in this world are temporary. I want enduring life. I I want eternal life. And therefore, um, I will give up things that aren't enduring. Okay, and there's some happiness to that. Hmm? What is the happiness? The ananda of that. The ananda is the enormous relief it comes that comes from that, because the life of attachments is 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 very burdensome. You're struggling to try to exist by attaching yourself to things, and the things keep disappearing. Hmm? That's what we do in our life. We're trying to fortify our sense of existence by acquisition. I get a better job. I get a partner. We'll 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 make offspring. We'll you know we'll get a bigger house. We'll you know, and you got to keep awake and alive. And uh, and uh, there's a struggle for existence, so it's burdensome. So the gani wants to end the struggle. Doesn't want to work. Hmm? Gandhi doesn't want to work. Hmm? No, he or she <laughs> says, enough of that. Hmm? I'll sit still. I want to exist. Hmm? And uh, that's enough for me. I'll be happy existing forever and in the knowledge uh, that things are temporary and I have nothing to do with them. So, the Gandhi wants loves to exist. So his ananda hmm, is kind of the relief of not having to struggle for existence, which is huge, if you could imagine. It's huge. It's immense. So his ananda is that, his knowledge is things don't endure, and his knowledge is there's, there's no other. 
His experience is there's no other. So there's nothing to do, hmm? just to be, and it's pretty happy to be. Now the yogi has a slightly different perspective. Hmm? Yoga is dualistic. Gyan is more monistic. Gyani thinks that there are others for one reason, because of attachments. And we all are different because of our different attachments and different desires. Hmm? So he really penetrates on this and thinks, all this variety, it's all due to attachment. Do away with attachment, there's no variety, there's unity. Hmm? There's one. They're all one. You get it? That's what it is. So, you know, it's, therefore it's shanti, 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 peace, peace, peace. Peace is a big relief compared to war. Hmm? Um, so, it's well-reasoned. It's, 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 it's a great idea. It's a, it's a possibility. Hmm? Uh, so, he's more, for, more focused more on sat and chit and ananda kind of serve that. Hmm? Now the yogi, yoga is dualistic because in yoga there's an Ishwar. You, know, you want to study yoga? You've got two main books, Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? In fact, the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita is, is basically Krishna's dissertation on Astanga Yoga, which is what the whole of Patanjali Sutras are. Hmm? And in Astanga Yoga it's very clear there's an Ishwar Ishwar Pranidhan, you know the term? In fact, Patanjali kind of recommends this. It comes up like three, four, five times in, in the sutras. That uh, to meditate on, in, in Pranidhan means like, it's almost like bhakti, it's like in submission to, hmm, to another. It's not, in the Yoga Sutras, the yogi doesn't become the Ishwar. Hmm? But he becomes like the Ishwar. Ishwar means controller, it's a name for mean for God, and controller means that I understand, I know everything. If you know everything, if you're omniscient, you got everything covered, right? We always want to get things under control, so we need more knowledge in order to control our situation. Well, the God knows everything, so hmm? being omniscient, He's in control of everything. Hmm? Got everything under control. I know everything that's going on. So the yogi's attracted to this, this, this kind of enlightenment. I, uh, uh, omniscience is described in the sutras as, as, as kind of the, much of what the attainment in yoga is about. So the yogi meditates on the Ishwar. He could meditate on other things to still the mind and get rid of the vrittis and so forth, but really meditation on the Ishwar is what's highly recommended. Hmm? And, 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 and yoga never identifies the yogi practitioner with the Ishwar entirely. Hmm? So the yogi, let's say, wants omniscience. Just, just look at yoga. In yoga, you're also getting control, right, of the body. Hmm? And even, even subtle organs and so forth. You can master digestion and all kinds of things, and your breath and your heart. So, 
your body becomes a microcosm of the whole world and you're the Ishwar of it. You've you got complete control. You know how everything works and, and you can have the doctor come in and stop your heart, start it again, right? It's like, there you are. You're, there you are. You're the God of the whole thing. This is the, this is the universe and you're the God. You know everything about it. Hmm? And of course, then you go, you, know, you, you go beyond that and you have some, um, some, I would say, limited sense of omniscience. Hmm? In samadhi, hmm? so the yogis focuses on chit. The jnanis focuses on sat. So the chit, so he he knows, he knows, and he exists. Hmm? And uh, there's some ananda in that also. There's some uh, joy in knowing everything's under control here, <laughs> something like that. Then in bhakti. Hmm? Well, the object of bhakti, say, let's say, in jnana, the object is the self. In yoga, the object is the Ishwar and myself. And then in bhakti, the object is Bhagwan, Krishna, Narayan, whatever form, Krishna. Hmm? And so, in bhakti, ananda is the goal, because ananda means joy, it means love. So the devotee, while the jnani wants to, loves to exist, the devotee exists only to love. So his exi- he, he knows or she knows and exists for the purpose of loving. So there's a kind of knowing in bhakti. I know myself to be the friend of Krishna. I know myself to be the lover of Krishna. There's an identity, a sense of self hmm? in transcendence that comes. That's, some, that's, that's, that's your chit factor. And there's an existence there, that's the lila, the whole domain. Hmm? The, the, the space beyond time and space hmm? that, that constitutes the lila. And the movement is all ananda. All the movements, if you study Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, the ocean of Bhakti Rasa, for example, describes all the movement, the friends of Krishna, they move like this. There's a certain kind of ecstasy when they go, you know, like this and they they wrestle with Krishna or something like that. The gopis, eye movements, and this, this all defined as a certain type of ecstasy. It's very interesting. A world of ananda and everything. Uh, everything is ananda. So that's their focus. They, they, they exist only for the purpose of loving. So existence and knowing, sat and chit, in bhakti become subordinate to ananda. But arguably at the same time, they become the most significant sat and chit more significant than an existence which, you know, one loves to have, hmm, is an existence for the purpose of loving. Hmm. So these are three different goals, three different transcendental ideals. Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Three features of the Godhead. Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Brahman for the Jnanis, Paramatma for the Yogis, and Bhagavan for the Bhaktas. These three aspects are there. There are three distinct paths. They have lots of similarities to them, much in common, but they're different too. Their object is different. Hmm? And so people, according to their sukriti and their association, they'll develop affinity for one or the other. Hmm? Now, you're, talk, you're trying to make it more complex because in some cases there's a sadhana or practice where there's a mixture of jnana and a mixture of bhakti, or a mixture of yoga, ashtanga yoga and bhakti, hmm? right? In all those 
instances, well, it depends. It depends if there's the mixture is yoga mixed with bhakti or bhakti mixed with yoga. Whether it's gyan mixed with bhakti or it's bhakti mixed with gyan. <laughs> In other words, if it's gyan mixed with bhakti, then the result will be more readily achieved by the power of bhakti, but it will be the same result of Brahman. If it's bhakti mixed with gyan, then the result will be the same, bhagwan, but it will be a certain perception and experience of bhagwan in which there's more knowing as to who Bhagwan is, that Bhagwan is God, for example. Because like in the Brajlila of Krishna, they don't know that he's God. Hmm? Those gopis, they, Krishna doesn't even know that he's God. Hmm? He forgot about that. That's what makes that intimacy possible. It's a very far out idea. See, so the Ananda is totally permeating there. But there are other sections of the Leela where there's more sense of the godhood of Krishna, and so more knowledge is coming into play. Hmm? And so this way you understand the mixtures, and same with yoga, and, and so on. So one may do, one may do, one may pursue bhakti, in the context of that, we do astanga yoga, and um, there are schools like, like that too. Hmm? Um, and it's also talked about in the Gita, in the sixth chapter. We should do yoga because we are so many yogis here, but we should strive for unalloyed bhakti, and then you can do yoga as an occupation. <laughs> okay. Anything else? <laughs> okay, so I should get ready to go. I appreciate your time and questions and, and all. It's been really nice to be with you here, as usual. Hi. When are you going to come and see me? Your husband has come. I know, I'm going to come. Yeah, it's a nice place. He had a great time there. So bring your bring your son. son? Yeah. yeah, bring him to. Yeah, I want to come. Okay, so all of you, I hope to see you in California or Costa Rica or in Asheville. We have a new community there or back here. If not, if you don't come after me, then I'll come back here. <laughs> see you. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.